Thanks for tuning in. You're on localjobnetwork.com radio, and I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson. You're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. Now, today we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, before we dive in today's topic, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, as you say, I was with the government for quite a while doing this kind of work. I worked with the EEOC, and uh, I guess the most important thing I did there was work with uh, Naomi Levin on the uh, ADA regulations. And at OFCCP, I was the regional director for the Midwest region of the agency, which is the largest region of OFCCP. Okay. And we brought you in today because you recently wrote an article about a new directive on calculating back pay for victims of employment discrimination. So just to kind of kick us off here, what's the significance of this new directive? There's actually a federal contract compliance manual that's been around forever that they've been trying to update for the longest time and have had various hurdles in doing that. So I guess this directive was to take one little section of that, which is the back pay section uh, from Chapter 7, and try to bring, I guess, certain questions, answer certain questions that the regions might have been answering differently, make a, you know, a single national answer to those things, and also to, to give contractors an idea of the principles that were going to be applied when the agency crafted its back pay remedies. Okay. So diving into the article a little bit, you talk about the basic principles of the new directive, specifically uh, that the directive reaffirms that contractors can expect back pay as part of the make whole relief where there was monetary losses to the victim. What is that make whole relief and why is that important? Well, when you are discriminated against, there are several things that happen to you. And and some of those things uh, cost you money. For example, if you were if you would have gotten a job had the employer not discriminated, then part of your loss is that you didn't have the opportunity to earn that money. And any benefits that would have gone with that money, you know, whether it's life insurance or vacation days and all that kind of thing, those were things that you didn't get to enjoy because you were discriminatorily not provided the job. Likewise, if there's discrimination in compensation, then you might have been have had years where your pay was artificially lower because of the discrimination. So make whole is called that because it's supposed to put you in the position you would have enjoyed had you not been subjected to the discrimination. So if you would have earned some uh, money or benefits but because you got the job, it's supposed to give you back those. It's make you whole because you have lost something due to someone else's bad acts. So the remedy is to put you in the position you would have been had that those bad acts never occurred. Of course, it never quite does it, but that's the goal of it. Okay, right, exactly. I mean, there's, it's hard. it would be hard to gauge precisely what that would include. And also, a lot of times you don't know precisely who would have gotten the job. It may be a class of people who were subjected to the discrimination, and because of that, you never got down to who the particular people would have been that were members of that class who would have actually gotten the job. Sure, sure, okay. And how long can that back pay period go? Well, you said the liability period can extend backwards as far as two years prior to receiving the scheduling letter from OFCCP. And forwards, as long as the harm continues, uh, the back pay liability continues. So if I fail to hire you 
back two years ago and it was discrimination that caused me not to hire you, then you can recover the losses occasioned by that failure to hire going back two years. And if I still haven't hired you going forward uh, until either the case is solved or you get hired or you get an unqualified offer to get hired. Now, the current federal contract compliance manual that you had mentioned earlier and this new directive don't necessarily mirror each other. What are some of those key differences between them? And do you have an opinion one way or another of which contractors should follow moving forward? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because they, they cover similar subject matter, in fact, the same subject matter, but in slightly different ways. So it's hard to know, reading the directive and reading the manual, what their relationship was supposed to be. And that's one of the things I commented on in the article. It's, it's not clear if the directive supersedes or simply supplements the uh, FCCM. For example, uh, when you give someone an offer of a job, and, and if you don't have any strings attached and it was, the, you know, it was the kind of job that they were originally denied, then that would stop your liability for back because at that point, if they don't take the job, it's on them. Well, they talk about that in the manual. They don't really talk about it in the directive, but it may not, be, may not mean that they want to change anything. It may just be that because it was talked about in the manual, they decided not to talk about it in the directive. And then though there are some other you know minor language changes that make you wonder you know is there is there a meant to be a difference here or not and since the agency didn't say uh, whether any of that made a difference you know it's kind of hard to tell one of the main differences that I do see and I think probably makes a to me it makes a lot of sense is that the manual really points out victim specific relief as the preferred methodology whereas most of the remedies at OFCCP really are formula relief. And in this new directive, they shift the emphasis to formula relief, giving much more time in their discussion to it and treating it as an alternative as opposed to one, you know, it's the lesser of the two. It's, it's really kind of treated like this is one way to do it and this is another way to do it. And these are the occasions when this one is appropriate and these are the occasions when the other way of going about it is appropriate. So it kind of shifts things. To, I think trying to bring it more in line with what they really do today. So you bring up uh, victim-specific relief and, and formula relief. What is the difference between those two? Well, victim-specific relief is just what it sounds like. You know who would have gotten that job in the absence of discrimination, and you know what they would have earned had they gotten that job. And there's this whole other principle that you know when you are discriminated against, you can't just sit on your hands. You're supposed to continue to seek for work of the same kind that you were looking for and make a reasonably diligent effort to get it. So you know when it comes to a mitigation, if you're talking about victim-specific, then we look at the effort that particular individual made. Was it enough of an effort? How much did they earn uh, from making that effort? What was the cost of that earning? You know, how much did it cost them to go out and seek that job? So there are all these particulars about that specific individual who would have, in the absence of discrimination, have gotten the job. In formula relief, you have, you don't have that. You have a group approach. So for example, if the discrimination is against women, you may not know which of many women who applied for the job and were turned down would have actually gotten the job. So we may, may have a group of people, all of whom meet at least the minimum qualifications, all of whom were subjected to the discriminatory mindset. If you say, I'm not going to hire women, you weren't going to hire any of them. So we don't know as among the qualified women who were vying for the job, which of those women would actually have gotten the job had you not been a discriminating employer. So in that case, what they do is figure out what, how many jobs 
should women have been expected to get? And that they do that by a method called the shortfall. So they look statistically, given how many qualified women were in your applicant pool, how many people you hired, how many would, would this, the laws of statistics suggest would have been hired. And once we figured out how many of those, of those people would have been hired, figure out the value of the jobs lost, and basically just divide that among the whole class. So that means that some people in the class who never would have actually gotten hired get a percentage of the remedy, but the people who would have gotten hired don't get the full remedy because we don't know who's who in that group. Sure. So that's what formula relief is, figuring out a way to provide a remedy to the class when we don't know for sure which individual would have gotten it or when it's hard to tell you know, what any particular individual would have gotten had there not been discrimination. Okay. Now you talk about, you know, sort of what's included, what, what's not necessarily included in back pay. Anything that can be reduced to a monetary loss is pretty much included in back pay. So back pay is the amount of money you would have earned or the, the things that have, have money value that you would have enjoyed had you gotten the job. So it would be the salary that would be included. It would be the, the bonuses. It would be night differential if you get an extra pay because you worked uh, nighttime or if you got extra pay because you worked on the weekends or you worked on a Sunday or if there was overtime that could have been earned or if there were uh, vacation days that could have been earned or if you would have earned uh, you know, some kind of bonus or they would have given you a car or whatever it is that the, that the employed people would have gotten as a result of getting that job that can be reduced to a monetary figure, that would be what back pay is all about. Yeah, back pay does not include things like, you know, your feelings got hurt. Yeah. That would be compensatory <laughs> or punitive damages. Sure. But back pay is replacing the dollar value of the income loss and the, the benefits lost from not getting that job. And what about attrition? How is that factored in? Well, attrition is, is interesting as it treat, is treated in this directive. Attrition is, you know, what, what, in the absence of discrimination, some people would have probably left this job anyway at various points. That's the idea of attrition. So let's say you had a job and you hired 10 people and there, there was no discrimination involved. Maybe on average, people only stayed in the job a year because it's a high turnover job. Or maybe they only stayed six months. So when you're looking at the job, you, you want, uh, as, a, as a contractor, you want to say, well, wait a minute. The job, the harm that, uh, was caught, that, that came upon the, the affected class. It, it, you have to measure it in terms of how long in the absence of discrimination would any of these people have stayed in the job in any, in any event. So the, the contractor wants to show that people who come in this job, maybe they only they leave after a certain point or they, you know, all of them didn't come in at the same time to try to figure out how many days, how much time, even those that weren't discriminated against would really have stayed in this job. And what the, the uh, agency is talking about in in this directive is it makes certain assumptions about whether or not the people would, would have been employed, whether they would have stayed and that kind of thing. They might, they, for example, they have a, a, an assumption that they would have been continuously employed throughout the back pay period. Well, maybe you can show that that's not the case. If you had a potential two-year liability, but people only stayed in this job a year and a half, you'd want to present evidence that said, well, wait a minute, it would not be realistic to give two years to everybody, two years worth of pay, because all of them or virtually all of them would have been gone in a year and a half. So you'd have to offer some evidence to, to prove that to the agency. Otherwise, uh, according to the directive, the agency is going to make the assumption that really gives the most back pay to the uh, victims of discrimination. So they'll assume that they were there the whole time unless you can show otherwise. 
Okay. No, that's that's a really helpful tip. Kind of switching gears here a little bit. The directive also states that the shortfall, and I know you'd mentioned that earlier, an averaging method may be applied when calculating monetary losses. Can you summarize just to clarify those two methods? Absolutely. Uh, for, uh, if you have, say, uh, let's give e- nice even round numbers. Maybe you have 100 men and 100 women who apply for a job. And uh, you would expect in a fair world uh, that you have 50 and 50, that if they were qualified, that would get hired. That an even number of hires would result because you had an even number of qualified applicants. But in the discriminatory world, let's say you had 90 male hires uh, and only 10 women that got hired. Well, if you had 100 of each, then that looks really lopsided when you get to hiring. So we try to figure out, well, how many people in a fair, how many women in a fair world would have gotten hired? Well, we look at, you had 100 and 100, you'd expected 50 to get hired statistically. We only had 10. So the shortfall is the difference between the 50 that you expected to get hired and the 10 who actually got hired. So the shortfall in that case would be 40 women. Now, keep in mind, you still have these 90 men on board. So these women aren't going to be working in the the 50-50 non-discriminatory world that they would have enjoyed if it had actually been a fair hiring to begin with. They will always be in the 90-50 world if they they bring on 40 people to bring it up. But the shortfall is 40. So the amount of money is calculated on the monetary value of those 40 jobs. And you would then divide that money across those qualified women in the uh, in that in that hundred that didn't get hired, so the ninety women would share uh, some portion of the value of those of those uh, forty jobs. Okay. So that's the shortfall. Now the averaging usually comes up when it comes to compensation. So let's change the scenario. Now we're talking about pay. If you look at the average man is making a hundred thousand dollars, and the average woman in the same job with same responsibilities is making say uh, sixty thousand dollars. You want to bring the average woman's pay up to the average man's pay because they're making all this money. So you figure out what's that difference, that would, what, you know, how much would it take to bring them up, and then you want to give an extra $40,000 to bring the women equal to the men. So now in pay, and this has always been one of my pet peeves, in pay <laughs> you're going to bring that 60000 up to 100000 Sure. because you want to match the women to the men. So now they actually are in a fair pay world, whereas they'll never be in a fair hiring world because they just do it differently. Okay. I've been beating that drum for the longest time, but I haven't gotten anywhere. <laughs> but that's the difference. That's, history has, you know, has played out this way that, that that's how they calculate it, which is kind of ironic because if you, don't, if you never actually catch up in the number of jobs, you don't get any pay associated with uh, that advantage. So they never eliminate the advantage when it comes to hiring, but they do try to eliminate the advantage when it comes to making a, a payment for compensation. Yeah. So that's how the two work. Shortfall tends to go with job opportunities missed. It could be hiring, could be terminations, anything where you would have gotten an opportunity and less if you got it than you would have expected. And averaging usually comes in when it, when it deals with your compensation. Okay. No, that, that definitely helps uh, clarify those, how those are both uh, and when they're both being used. Right. Now, the article also goes into mitigation. What exactly is that and how is that factored into the overall back pay? Well, mitigation is an affirmative defense that the contractor can raise. Because as I mentioned before, the victim of discrimination is expected to continue to diligently seek work, uh, you know, work of the, of the caliber that they were seeking, but they're supposed to keep seeking it. So, but it's an affirmative defense. Before, OFCCP would assume everybody's going to raise this defense because virtually everybody did. Every now and again, you found someone who didn't, but uh, most of the time, people were savvy enough to know they could raise this. And so they, the agency at that time would just 
figure out a mitigation figure and put that as part of their initial uh, calculation of the remedy. What changed with the present administration is because it's an affirmative defense, and this is they're, they're correct in this, that it's for the contractor to plead and prove, they basically took it out, and now they will give you an initial uh, estimation of the remedy that does not factor in mitigation. But all of the people who are given this calculation should, on their own, raise the mitigation argument because it has to be accepted. Now, it has to be accepted that, so there, that mitigation applies. What doesn't have to be accepted is the figure you want to use. So that's where the debate comes in, is how much would money would we uh, subtract out of the back pay as what they could have earned had they made the reasonable effort. And uh, the, the director speaks a little bit to how the agency is going to do it. The agency basically assumes that they, the victims of discrimination would, would earn at a minimum the federal minimum wage. And so that would be where they would start with their argument about what the mitigation figure should be. Now, that may be realistic for some jobs, but it may not be realistic for other jobs. If it's a highly skilled job, people seeking that kind of employment, if their ability to get a job in that area is, you know, is pretty much provable, you would, might want to argue for a higher figure. Say you're hiring engineers, they're probably not going to look for or accept a job at the minimum wage. So maybe you want to look at what is the average engineer, how long does it take them to find work, how much would they have earned. So that's where the discussion, you know, kind of begins to cycle in, is what should we include as mitigation? Now, there are a couple of things the agencies won't recognize as, as part of the mitigation figure. Uh, if they're on any kind of public assistance, you know, they got unemployment insurance or anything like that, okay. that's not considered replacement for wages. So they would not say, you know, say, well, this is how much they would have gotten in unemployment insurance, so we're going to subtract it out of the back pay. That's not going to happen. What they look at is if this person had gotten a job, what would they have earned? Now, in victim-specific relief, you need documentation of what they really earned. And, I mean, it's theoretically possible that if the person got a better job that you may wind up not on any back pay at all because maybe they earned more money than they would have had you hired them, which is kind of odd because then you kind of get away with discrimination. So I don't know what they'll ever do about that. But if, usually the case is that the person doesn't get as good a job. And so the difference between what they were able to command and what you would have paid becomes the, you know, the back pay figure that you're looking at. So that's what mitigation is. It's re the replacement income that they could have had with a reasonable effort. And the contractor can say, well, since they had this duty, we ought to take this money and subtract it from what I owe as back pay. Sure. Okay. So why is this new directive important to federal contractors, subcontractors, employers? Because this is where the checks get written. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when you get in trouble with OF, this is where you're going to write the check. Okay. And I think everybody is, is interested in minimizing the discrimination and minimizing their exposure to writing this check. Uh, so, the, you know, I think the directive is important because it helps, especially if you don't know anything about how OF does back pay, it helps you get a pretty decent picture how in the ordinary circumstance back pay would be calculated. And if you are regularly negotiating with uh, OFCCP, it, it answers some questions like there. I've had, uh, when I was uh, working at the agency, I've had contractors come in and say, well, I want to deduct the unemployment insurance. Well, now they can look at this and see that that's a non-starter. You know, it, it, right. it, it was a non-starter then, but it wasn't as clearly uh, uh, maybe uh, articulated. So, you know, that's a way that, that you can look at it. it. It also tells you about this assumption of continuous employment. The other thing that I think is important is that they, they assume everybody was unemployed or then that no one is working uh, during that back pay period, that everybody has a period of unemployment uh, wherein they're going to have to seek a job after they were discriminatorily denied one, if it's a hiring type of case. 
And what I used to do is look to see who was employed when they applied for the job and look who wasn't. And maybe my second stage of negotiation would be, okay, well, since these people were already looking, already employed, they probably didn't have to look for a job. So, you know, you would calculate, I would calculate the mitigation without an unemployment period for them. Well, the agency is not going to do that anymore from what the directive says. Oh, it's, okay. it's going to assume, even if the application says that they are presently employed, they're going to, they apparently aren't going to accept, accept that as sufficient proof that there should be no unemployment period for the applicant unless you have some other supplemental evidence that the person is, was actually working uh, you know, when, they, you know, when these events happened, which is kind of interesting because you know, the, at, at the application in my mind, is evidence. It may not be conclusive, but you know right. you don't have to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. And if the only evidence in the record is that they were employed when they sought this job, it does seem like the most likely scenario is that they would have just gone to work the next day. Kept working, which is right. why I use yeah, which is why I used to accept <laughs> this argument. But that they'll probably get pushed back on that. So contractors, I think, need to be aware of that. That's why my suggestion is that they go through and look at the things that the agency says it will presume if you don't offer them some other evidence to, to you know, persuade them that they should go another way. So I think this document helps contractors figure out those areas where they're going to need to have some evidence. Like, for example, when does, you, when does your health care kick in? You know, do they have to wait 60 days before it kicks in? Is it a couple of months? You know, when, uh, how, uh, at, at what point in the period did the people apply? Did they all apply at the same time? Or did they apply in a staggered way across? You know, is the, is the amount of time that minority stays, uh, if it's a minority case, do they stay any uh, their tenure on average any different than non-minority tenure? All of these kinds of things that will factor into how um, you know how how to do the back pay. The other thing that's important is how long will this unemployment period be? The agency directs you pretty much to this BLS data mm-hmm. on the commu- community survey, uh, where some contractors used to argue that you should look at unemployment insurance data. Well, this directive makes it clear that they're not going to look at the unemployment insurance data. They're going to look at this community survey data. They don't say it's exclusive, but it's the only thing they mention favorably. So uh, presumably that's your safe harbor when it comes to arguing as to how long it takes to find a job. So a lot of these things can be gleaned from a contractor looking at this directive. Some of the things are just restatements of what they do, but even that is helpful because now you know that this is what the national office has directed all the regions to do, and you shouldn't expect really variations on the theme on these particular items. And you talked about some tips sort of throughout our conversation here, but do you have any other ideas or best practices that you can offer to employers to help them prepare for this? Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, try your best (laughs) not to have to deal with this by not violating anything (laughs) to begin with. This is very important and by, you know, effectively defending yourself. But should you be in the unhappy position of uh, having to actually calculate a back pay liability, I, I think first you've got to identify the rebuttable presumptions, as I said. You know, look at the document. Where does the agency say, we're going to assume X if you don't prove Y? And make sure you have some evidence on Y. And then review your personnel records to see if anybody was subsequently hired. Because there is precedent in the law that if you've made an unconditional offer of employment, that that tolls your back pay liability because basically the person got the job as of that point. So sometimes what will happen is you'll have an employer that hires a lot of people, and they may not have hired the individual at that point, but maybe a couple of months later, they actually hired this person. So it's important, I think, to go through your victim list, and you should always get a list of 
who are, are who considered the victims, because those are the people that the checks would be going to, and, and look through your personnel records and see if, in fact, you did hire them, either at that facility or even at some of your other facilities, if there's somewhere where they came on board, because that would be, I think, a good argument relative to uh, uh, whether or not they, they experienced a, a high degree of harm. Then keep track of your applications and any of the information that you might have on what people earned. Since the agency is not invested in looking at applications to show people were employed, if they say anything else, if you have interview notes, if you have any other documentation from your conversation with them that, it, that shows that they, in fact, were employed, it just adds to the evidence you can offer the agency. Uh, as I mentioned before, if you have a delay in any entitlement to benefits, make sure you find out what that is so you'll have an accurate calculation of the benefits and you won't have the agency calculating it as if it started on day one. Okay. Uh, always get the mitigation deduction. You have, there's no reason you shouldn't get some kind of deduction for mitigation, but you have to bring it up and have something that the agency can accept as a good reason for why you came to your figure. And you want to always know why people are on the list, because even if you're talking formula relief, if this person didn't apply during the period or there's some other reason why they shouldn't be a part of that class, you need the list so you can check on that. So you would want to make sure you got that. Always ask OF how they came up with their money figure. They may not give you your, their formula sheets. I know I never would. But they have to tell you, here are, here's how we did it. We assumed that you know, an average person would earn this, this, and this. And these are all the assumptions. Here are all the figures we played it, we put into our formula. You can go get your formula and, and see if you can replicate that. Okay. And speaking of that, I would always run my own remedy calculation. Because that way you know whether the, there's some assumption the agency's made that you can show them, you know, that's not accurate. That's not what they really earn. So okay. I think those are some of the things that you need to do. And make the agency tell you specifically what is the employment decision that's discriminatory because you want to make sure that the, the people who are getting the remedy actually were subjected to that employment decision and they didn't apply before that even became a factor. So those are some things I hope are helpful. No, absolutely. Very, very, very helpful. And any, any sort of final thoughts that you want to kind of wrap up the conversation with today? Yeah, back pay. Also, there's all these things that are said, that, that is where you get to negotiate. You don't ever really write into your conciliation agreements, here's how we got this number. So the important thing is whether the total dollars that you're going to have to write the check for, whether you can live with it, not whether you would come to that dollar figure using the same theories or methodology or the same assumptions that the agency would. I mean, you may reject how the agency goes about calculating back pay, but if at the end of the day, the method you use and the method they use would bring you to the same dollar figure, you pretty much can get an agreement because you don't have to say, well, this dollar comes from here and that dollar is because of you know this thing over here. So focus on the bottom line dollar. Can you live with it? Is it a reasonable estimation of the harm? And, and remember, OF does settle most everything. Uh, and I would also educate myself on how much they tend to settle your kind of case for. And that can be done by FOIA requests and other things we used to get all the time. So you have a kind of an idea of what they usually pay or require a contract to pay in those circumstances. Well, thank you, Sandy. We appreciate your expertise and thoughts on this topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. For Sandy Ziegler, I'm Jacqueline Peterson for localjobnetwork.com radio, and thanks for listening.